Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jim, it's time to do a show about socialism. Oh, God help us. <laughs> and why so many people think Socialism's a good thing. But first, let's talk about our own form of private enterprise. Well, you know, Richard, I'm all for facing economic reality. So <laughs> what do you have in mind? Well, very soon we're going to launch a Patreon account, and we're hoping that our listeners will become our patrons. Before we do, we want to know more about you. Why do you listen to How Do We Fix It? What other podcasts do you listen to? We want to deepen our ties with our community of listeners, and that means you. Why do you listen? Tell us. Send us an email to daviescontent at gmail.com. I will repeat the address later in the show. Let's get started. Taking socialism seriously, Emily Chamley Wright. If you want to understand where we are today, we have to understand the history of the 20th century. And you cannot understand the history of the 20th century without understanding why Marx was so appealing to so many people. People looked around the world and they said, you know, I think we can do better than this. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Ever since the near collapse of the financial system in 2008 and the awful recession that followed, capitalism's critics have been on the offensive. Yep, socialism is back on the table with promises of free health care, free college, mandatory stock ownership by employees, and guaranteed income for all. As the resident capitalist on the show, I have to ask, do we really trust the government to accomplish all those things? Our guest today says it's time to take socialism seriously, or at least listen to why so many people today don't feel that capitalism is getting the job done. Emily Chamley Wright is an economist and president of the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. Emily joins us via Skype from Arlington, Virginia. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Hey, thanks so much for having me on. You say it is time to take socialism seriously. Why is this a good time for this debate? You know, we increasingly hear that students are interested in socialism, and some people will find this trend disturbing, but I really see it as an opportunity to engage in the big fundamental questions. You know, so like questions like, what does it mean to be an independent person? Uh, what does it mean to have obligations to one another in society? Who's responsible for me? Is society responsible for me or am I responsible for me? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that that young people should be engaging in and taking seriously. 
I read recently that an opinion poll said that about 50% of millennials have a positive view of socialism. So when millennials say they're socialist, do they understand what socialism means? Yeah, and the poll that you, you cited is an important one because if people were born after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, clearly when they say they are interested in socialism, it's not the Soviet Union that they have in mind. And it's not Venezuela either. It's, it's places like Denmark and Sweden that are sounding appealing to them. And this was clearly not what Marx understood to be socialism. But at the same time, even, even that interest is an entry point for us to take their ideas seriously. And it leads to a good conversation, at least, you know, for example, with Denmark and Sweden, actually, there's a lot of economic freedom in Denmark and Sweden, even though they have very, very pronounced social welfare systems. So that's a good conversation for us to have. So let's unpack a definition. What is socialism? Because it certainly means different things to different people in different countries. Right, right. So when Marx was talking about socialism, he was talking about not only political emancipation, he was talking about utter economic emancipation, this idea of completely lifting economic constraints from people. That pathway that he saw towards that was that we would eliminate private ownership of the means of production. So it was full and complete replacement of markets with central economic planning. That was the radical vision that Marx had. And that's a very different view than what most contemporary uh, socialist Democrats are talking about. So a lot of people don't really know or understand the kind of root meaning of socialism. But at the same time, you've also written that a lot of people have kind of a skewed idea of what markets are, that there are some kind of unregulated free-for-all where the strongest, you know, gets all the spoils. And you say markets actually have a lot of built-in systems of self-regulation. That's exactly the point for why I'm so excited about people being interested in socialism is that it's a pathway for us to understand markets at a deeper level, too. So markets are really an engine for creating solutions. Because we have markets, we have a way for sorting out the good ideas from the bad ideas. But the problem is we don't know today what tomorrow's solutions are going to be. And that's why having the long arc of history for us to examine is really helpful because it helps us to understand that human progress tends to emerge from the bottom up where there, are, as you say, lots of checks and balances, that the market itself is a regulatory process. It winnows out the bad ideas. Now, many supporters of socialism would argue that, that government does a better job of sorting out the good ideas from the bad ideas than markets do. Yeah, that's what I would see as important for us to recognize the need for humility. And a deep understanding of markets allows us to understand and appreciate how little we can actually rationally design and control. This use of the power of reason to guide and control can definitely work at the local levels, but that rationally designed notion of economic planning across an entire economic system, 
that's where we begin to get into trouble. Because when we try to impose order from the top down, we eliminate all that bottom-up discovery that markets generate from the bottom up. But that lesson is not obvious. A big theme of our show, How Do We Fix It, has been how do we get conversations going across these political boundaries with people who don't agree with each other? You're a professor. You work with young people who are exploring their ideas all the time. What are some of the ways that you get these conversations going without just shutting down the conversation or driving people away? Well, the first thing is just what you said is taking people's ideas seriously and really appreciating that when they're entering into the conversation, unless we have very, very good reason to believe otherwise, we should assume that they're entering that conversation in good faith. And that is the way when I would teach comparative economic systems in which I taught Marx and I taught about markets is that I took Marx really, really seriously. Because if you want to understand where we are today, we have to understand the history of the 20th century. And you cannot understand the history of the 20th century without understanding why Marx was so appealing to so many people. People looked around the world and they said, you know, I think we can do better than this, than be- better than what we've got. We've still got a lot of poverty around us. How do we solve that problem? We shouldn't start the conversation by assuming that the person that we're speaking with just hasn't learned their history lessons or is ideologically bent on finding fault with my argument. We should assume that they want to engage in a conversation with us just as we want to engage in a conversation with them. And that means really taking on faith that they're well-intentioned in that conversation. The socialist critique seems to have special resonance today with many, that inequality is spiraled out of control, that the economy is rigged in favor of vested interests. Uh, So is that one reason why now we're having this conversation much more than we did, say, in the 1990s? And I think that we should take very seriously this critique, that we look around the world and we still see a lot of people struggling economically even though we live in an affluent society. And the socialist agenda promises a fix to complex problems like this. By, if we put just the right people in charge with the right policies and programs, then we can fix all of this. The problem is, though, that when we put economic outcomes in the hands of political actors, that is a recipe for crony capitalism in which elites pick winners and losers. This is a key concern of free market economists like me, but it's also a key concern of, as you point out, progressives on the left. So are you saying that sometimes when people are critical of what they think is capitalism, what they're really observing and the problems they're observing have a lot to do with the different, actually, restrictions that are placed and the political influence that's being uh, and tinkering that's being uh, layered on top of these markets. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's a really important distinction between, say, being pro-business and pro-market. A pro-business position says, let's craft our policy environment so we favor the interests of existing businesses. That's what crony capitalism essentially is. And And who does that remind us of? What politician? Well, I think this is the playbook of our current president. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, when he was running, it struck me. People said, oh, well, you need a businessman for president. I thought the New York real estate industry is the last place I would pick a business person because it's the least free market. It's all crony capitalism. It's all who do you know, what favors can you get. I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine kind of business. And it does seem that he's taken that philosophy into the White House. And that's exactly what we don't need. What we need is market discipline. And market discipline is a radically open way of thinking about the world. In other words, the fact that your business exists today gives you no default claim that you should exist tomorrow. You need to earn the business that you have tomorrow. You need to earn that today. And so that difference between a market discipline and a mentality that says, let's protect and have a lot of subsidies going to current businesses, those are diametrically opposed points of view and ways of thinking about what the market actually does. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest is Emily Chamley Wright. And the title of our episode is Taking Socialism Seriously. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I lived in Britain during the 70s and 80s, and you've made a reference to this, there are many different ways of looking at socialism. And in, in Britain and in Europe, there is a different understanding and a raging debate between socialists and, and social democrats. Could you uh, talk a little bit about that? One of the things that we see in uh, social democratic systems like Denmark and Sweden, for example, is that one way to think about it is that it's really a capitalist system with a pronounced policy of redistribution, wealth redistribution sort of layered on top. So the wealth distribution is real and it's a significant part of what makes up those economies. But it's also important to recognize that the wealth comes from someplace and there is a tremendous amount of wealth generated in these societies. And that leads to an important question. You know, what allows for that wealth creation to happen? And it's the surprising amount of economic freedom that's at work in these societies that generates the wealth in the first place. What are some of the things that people who support socialism are arguing for are, are the problems that they're identifying that supporters of free markets like you think, okay, they've got a point. We need to work on this. One of the things we could talk about, for example, is if we all agree that we want to provide some kind of baseline social safety net, 
then let's figure out the best way to do that. Is the best way to do that to have a lot of government programs that try to sort of engineer people's spendings and consumption patterns? Or is it that we want to just trust people to make decisions on their own, provide them with, uh, say, uh, a basic income, for example, and allow them to make the choices they want to make? Which of those two do we want to have or which would we want to lean towards for or against? And there are good arguments on both sides that would lead someone in one direction. But if we trust people to make choices, good choices on their own, because they know they're the people in the best position to know their own circumstances, it would lean us more towards having a kind of stripped down system that says we're going to provide the social safety net, but not try and dictate the choices that people make once they have those resources in hand. We're based in New York, and we recently had a huge fuss over Amazon, um, and Amazon wanted to build one of its major headquarters in New York, but it got a tremendous amount of funding from state government, and progressives, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, led a campaign against Amazon getting those subsidies. It, it sounds like that's another area of potential agreement between you and, and progressives. So we want to avoid a system where we are attracting business because they're getting special government handouts. That's just a recipe for crony capitalism. And so one of the things we should be then talking about is what would be the best practices for a municipality to adopt long-term that allows them to attract a steady stream of, of businesses to their region. But if you're going to then include in that 70% taxes on wealth, that's probably not going to be part of an equation that is going to attract businesses to your community. Why not? Well, because people have other places they can go. Sometimes I worry that these conversations are hard because people bring intense moral sense to these topics. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio likes to say, there's plenty of money in this country, it's just in the wrong hands, as if the people who have it are somehow morally corrupt. So for some people, it's actually kind of satisfying, or they like the idea of punishing these bad people by taking away their money, and maybe even they're more focused on that side of it than they are on who should get the money. And so how do you... How do you have that conversation? How do you talk to those people without just saying you're wrong or your, your answer is going to blow up the economy? Let me say how you don't talk about that. You don't start that conversation by saying that economics has nothing to do with morality. I think that that's a big mistake of conservative commentators is to start the conversation there. Um, I think it's important to point out, for example, that the father of free market economics, is, as we often understand it, we attribute to being Adam Smith. And Adam Smith was not an economist. Adam Smith was a moral philosopher. I think it's valuable to point out that he grounded his defense of market exchange in his understanding of what the rules of just conduct looked like, what the system of morality looked like that made society possible. So if we start the conversation there with an understanding that economics is, in fact, grounded within moral philosophy, perhaps we could come to an agreement with each other that it is worth us asking those questions 
what are the moral foundations of a good society? What are the moral foundations of prosperity? So, Emily, you mentioned the importance of, of history. Walk us through the difference between communism and socialism, especially as it was applied in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. So in the period just after the revolution in the Soviet Union, there was a time when Lenin understood that what he was doing was implementing Marxist socialism. It was an utter disaster, right? Economically, everything collapsed. So that they could have any kind of semblance of control and power, they had to back away from that system. And that's when we got to this phase called the new economic policy era. And from then on, we really were in a situation where we had markets at some level, uh, but with a lot of uh, economic control or political control of the economy in what they called the commanding heights of, of the economy, the large industrial sectors. Understanding that history is critical because from then on, what we had in the history of, of socialism was really a heavily managed market economy. What they're talking about essentially is a, a politically managed market economy. Final question, and that is make the case for markets. Make the case that, that you put forward to your young students who are skeptical about capitalism. What makes markets better than, say, top-down uh, solutions or a top-down decision-making by government on the economy? Markets make us smarter. Or more precisely, markets allow us to behave as if we are smarter than we actually are. Think about markets as a massive communication system that allows us to collaborate and cooperate with people we don't even know. Markets are a mechanism by which I can make use of knowledge that you possess and I don't possess. Let's think about that. Markets allow each of us to make use of knowledge that we don't possess directly, but is instead dispersed across countless market participants. People will never meet, and yet we can cooperate with one another, even though we're never in the same room at the same time, never meet each other face to face. Markets are an engine for cooperation, collaboration, and a peaceful route to prosperity and human flourishing. Emily Chamley Wright, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much, Richard and Jim. It's been a pleasure. Coming up, Jim and me and our <laughs> wonderful conversation. <laughs> Jim and I. Coming up, Jim and I and our wonderful conversation. Did I get that right, Jim? Well, I mean, if you assume a verb, if you say, if you say, you say to me or with me. So if you say to Richard, if I want to say send the email to Richard and to me. So if I want to say send the email to Richard and me, I don't say to Richard and I. You know what? I was tempted to do that. You know what? Um, I, I wasn't expecting an answer to my question. <laughs> I just wanted you to say yes. 
Okay. So let's do it again. No, uh, no, no. It's, 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 it's fun. It was lovely. It was a nice little moment. Was oh, no, moment. no. Don't keep all that. Yes. Yes. It oh, was it's lovely. so it was ped a good pedantic. No, it's great. I love how pedantic it was. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> I was fearful before we started this interview with a free market economist and with you being a very much a free market person that it would be like, ah, socialism sucks and here's why. And it turned out to be a much more interesting interview than I, than I thought it would be. Well, you picked it, Richard, <laughs> because she wrote this really interesting op-ed saying that people like her, like me, people who advocate for free markets need to listen carefully to the things that people feel that aren't working right in our system today. So I want to throw a question back to you as someone who's more skeptical of, of capitalism and free markets. Where do you see them failing? Where do, you, where do you see them not working? Inequality has grown to unacceptably high levels, especially over the last 40 years. Uh, the average income at the top 1% is up, according to The Economist, which is no friend of socialism, by 242%, which is six times the increase for middle-income earners. So I feel we do have this, this crisis of there being too much money and, and too many tax breaks going to extremely wealthy people. I'm not arguing for socialism, but I do think that some of the questions and, and points that are raised by egalitarians and socialists are certainly uh, certainly worth listening to. It is pretty weird and, and unsettling, the, this, this run-up um, of the top 1%. On the other hand, they do pay the vast majority of taxes. This idea that, oh, the rich have all these tax loopholes. The top 20% of uh, taxpayers in the U.S. pays 88% of all income taxes. The 1% by themselves pays 38% of income taxes. So this idea that, oh, they get away with everything. Well, but, but some people do get away with a lot. For instance, taxes on carried interest profits. And some companies, which, which get away with paying virtually no tax at all, when they should be paying their fair share. You know, if carried interest is our biggest problem with capitalism, we're in excellent shape. You know, yeah, should we tinker with the tax code to make sure that, that everybody pays? But again, the reality uh, it's is— It's more than tinkering. The vast majority of taxes in this country are paid by rich people. And the idea that we can solve all these problems, free college, free everything, by just taxing them even more, you're not going to get there. There's not enough money there. If you look at countries like Norway and Sweden— they do re redistribute a lot of income, but it's not from the 1% to everybody else. It's from the 60th percentile, from the 50th percentile. If you make in the 50th percentile an in income in those countries, you pay about half your income in taxes. If you're in favor of that, by all means, take that out to the American electorate and explain to them why, why no, you people ma making $60,000 in this country need to start paying 30000 of it in taxes. Yeah, you make a very good point, e even though you're, you're sounding a little bit hectoring. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I don't like the tone, Jim. <laughs> we need a little more humility. But, but it's true that if you're going to have vast new social programs, that the people who are going to pay for them are the taxpayers and not just the wealthy. I think that some of the problems that, have, that we now have with capitalism and with the way society is structured, some of the best critiques are coming from people I actually don't agree with, and that's the progressive left. And that's why I think that this conversation around socialism has real value. I could not agree more. They're identifying problems that are real. Their solutions are utter fantasies. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And if I didn't say it already, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.